Well, welcome to Menlo Church. We're so glad you're joining us today. We're a church that believes that everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. So we hope you enjoyed today's message. Well, I want to say hi to everybody at all of our campuses, everybody joining us online. My name is John. I'm a sinner. Thank you for welcoming that confession, and I want to welcome you to this program. We're in a series called The Way, and we're learning together how to live as disciples, as followers of Jesus. And this whole idea is based on a promise of Jesus that he brings the power to transform lives that's really available, but what we need is uh, an accessible, concrete, non-legalistic, tangible way of life. Not just a random smorgasbord of devotional activities, not something that's unintentional. We need a way in order to experience that kind of change. And we're learning it step by step. The first step, give up, surrender my life and will to the care of God. And then next, think up to have the constant flow of thoughts in my mind renewed by uh, especially engaging in the scripture regularly. And then third step, to look up, to stop living in prayerless striving and ask God to give me the knowledge of his will and the power to carry it out in every moment, this moment right here. Now, here's the deal. Each of those steps is something I can do on my own, just me and God. But now, this weekend, step four takes us from me to we. I cannot grow spiritually all by myself. Nobody can. There's an old saying in AA, we can get drunk on our own, we get sober together. I can sin on my own, I get healed by God together in community. So step four is love in. I get into a community of people that I can love, and then these practices that I'm doing on my own, surrender, learning from scripture, prayer, I begin to do also with others, and we enter into what might be called the shared life. In child development, there's a state, some of you know all about this, where little kids engage in what's called parallel play. The capacity for this often begins when they're about two or three years old. You put them in a room with another two-year-old, and their bodies are right next to each other, but they can't really interact or cooperate, so they're not really playing together. They're playing separately in the same space. Parallel play is considered an early inevitable step in a child's development. It's characterized by egocentric behavior and the inability to decenter. interestingly, to put somebody else first. In parallel play, you don't have to share your toys. In parallel play, you're free to do whatever you want. Now, how long this stage lasts depends on culture and geography. In Midwestern towns with a high emphasis on community, it lasts till the age of maybe five or six. In more competitive and individualistic areas, it can go on longer. In the Bay Area, generally, it lasts until about retirement. But the truth is that we're made for each other. We need each other. We cannot grow 
or heal or become holy without it. And spirituality is not a parallel deal. It's not something that's just between me and God. Now, there's a word in the Bible for this. It's a great word, but I promise you're going to be underwhelmed by it. And that word is fellowship. You rarely hear that word outside of church. It has become a cliche. It conjures up the idea of having churchy small talk with churchy snacks in a churchy setting. But in the early church, it was the opposite. In the early church, they had such a profound experience of honest, reconciled, barrier-transcending life together that they had to find a word to describe it. And they adopted a little used Greek word. It's called koinonia. It's the Greek word. Because uh, they needed a way to describe this radical kind of sharing and participation and communion and generosity and identifying with, which meant that if you became a part of this family, unlike any other human community, you were never alone. When someone goes through heartbreak or loss and people, without being asked, bombard them with food and caring and meals and visits and gifts and errands getting run and help being given, that's koinonia. That's the church. Or need. When somebody is without a job or without a home or struck by a crisis and they don't have adequate financial resources and another person or brother or sister in Jesus comes forward and says, I can help, it would be a joy and resources get shared and generosity flows without even being requested, that is koinonia. Or correction, because koinonia is not just soft. When somebody is going down the wrong track, making big mistakes, and a deeply loving friend says, I care for you too much to wordlessly watch you self-destruct. And they courageously speak the truth in love. That is koinonia. Or joy and, and just delight and playfulness. When Linda, with whom I work, secretly put cheap romance novels on my bookshelf in my office and left them there for a year. And every time I had a publicity picture taken for speaking somewhere, had me pose right in front of those books so that people would think I filled my holy office and my mind with that tacky, pulpy junk. That's not koinonia, that's koinonitis. That's actually a disease. Actually, forgiveness is part of koinonia too. Now, to get very focused, very clear on this fourth step, fellowship in particular is the practice of engaging in common activities like worship, learning from the Bible, praying, sharing, confessing, serving with other people, with other disciples of Jesus for the purpose of our mutual growth together in the community and the blessing of other people outside the community. That's what fellowship, this fourth step, is. It doesn't so much mean doing new things. It means doing what I'm already doing, surrender, study, prayer, now, sometimes, together with others. In fellowship, I ask God's help to move from isolated living to community. I commit myself to a group of people, and they become like my new family. I make them a priority. I commit to worshiping together with them regularly. I will talk with them about my temptations. I will allow them to tell me the truth about myself. I find one or two people to be spiritual companions, to know and care for everything about my soul. Now, we're trying in this series to make each step as simple as possible. Step one is surrender. Step two is read the Bible so that it changes my thoughts. Step three is pray. Step four is do life together. Do life together. And in particular, do spiritual life together. Because we are like little pieces of charcoal 
uh, we can sustain the fire of God when we're in contact with each other, but when we get isolated, the fire kind of goes out. For some reason, for some reason, it's like we can hold more of God when we're all together than we can when we get isolated and separated and scattered. Now, the most powerful and gripping description of this Jesus way of life, of this fellowship, is found in the book of Acts in the second chapter. It's a quite famous chapter about the church. This became a new way of life for human beings to do together. Anybody could do it. It was costly. It was compelling. It was outrageously joy-producing. And oh, by the way, it changed the world. And I want to look at it this weekend and, and walk through what fellowship requires and then invite all of us to take this next step. Here's what it says. This is kind of the creedal text of the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There has never been anything like the church, like this fellowship. And I actually want to start with an observation that comes towards the end of this passage where it says they ate together. Now, eating together has been an important part of fellowship from the very beginning. But just because you eat with someone, even a Christian, doesn't make it fellowship. The text says that they ate with glad and sincere, very interesting word, hearts. In other words, fellowship requires authenticity. People were so gripped by the good news that Jesus gives grace and forgiveness that when they came together and ate, they took off their masks. They came out of hiding. They got real about their struggles and their temptations and their sin. Here's the truth about me. Here's the truth about me. It's quite amazing. They ate with sincere hearts. Fellowship is where who they were on the outside is the same as who they were on the inside. Ironically, paradoxically, way too often churches, I think because we aspire towards being like Jesus, can often engage in fake fellowship where people smile and are polite and superficial and pretend like everything is fine and everybody likes everybody and nobody has doubts and everybody's children are perfect. That's not fellowship. Fellowship does not mean pretending to be more spiritual than you really are. Fellowship does not mean shifting into superficial, safe, religious small talk. But we sometimes in churches kind of train each other. That's what you're supposed to do. So don't get too real. A mom is being visited by a pastor when her young son comes running into the living room. He's super excited. He's holding a dead rat by the tail, but he's so thrilled he does not notice the minister. Then he says to his mom, Mom, I was playing behind the garage, and I saw this rat running around, and I threw a rock at it, and I hit it, and it just laid there. So I threw another one, and then I went over and kicked it, and then I picked it up, and I threw it against the garage as hard as I could, and then I threw it again. And then he sees the pastor, and he realizes if looks could kill, the way his mom is looking at him would make him a dead man. And he holds the rat up by the tail and says in a very pious voice, 
And then the dear Lord called him home. Um, fellowship is not that. Fellowship is not boring. It's not surface talk. It's not trying to look good. It's not cliche. One of the most striking features of the disciples' fellowship is how much they messed up. Peter denied Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus. Thomas doubted Jesus. James and John self-promoted to Jesus. Paul persecuted Jesus' followers. Zacchaeus cheated people. And Jesus was famous, actually a better word is notorious, for engaging in table fellowship with sinners. And I think part of that is maybe because they were willing to be real, while religious people so often hid and pretended. And that kills fellowship. Once the church got started, the first two people who tried to pretend, who tried to hide, were a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And they pretended to be more generous than they really were to get other people to think quite highly of them. And they both dropped dead because pretense will kill a church. The message is real clear. No pretending. See, on the human level, we often think getting real is dangerous and pretending is safe. But with God or with addiction or with sin in the spiritual realm with my soul, getting real is what is safe, no matter how much it might hurt. And pretending is what is fatal, no matter how good it might feel. Fellowship is raw and real and honest and hard and messy. It involves risk and will only do it where we're made safe, not even primarily by each other, but by God, by the love and grace and mercy of Jesus. The word translated sincere was actually made up of two words, the word for sunlight and the word for judge or discern, to be judged or tested in the sunlight. You, you can't hide in the sunlight. It's ironic in our world, intimacy is often thought of as something that happens in the dark, behind closed doors. In the Bible, darkness is where we hide stuff. Jesus' friend John put it like this, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. There's never been a community like this. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and the truth has no place in us, and we kill the fellowship. The blood, the death, the sacrificial love of Jesus on the cross has cleaned me up in God's eyes way beyond what I could ever do. So I can come out of the darkness into intimacy, in the light together with you. That's all we do. Misfits, failures, sinners in the church, loved by God, forgiven by Jesus. Fellowship uh, requires, demands authenticity. And then fellowship requires commitment. The beginning of this text in Acts 2 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, the apostles' teaching was all about the life and message and death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what we devote ourselves to as we read the scriptures so that they can change our minds. Really, this entire passage of Acts 2 is about their devotion to the fellowship because they're involved in all these activities of learning and eating and praying and sharing together. But here's the key. This way of life, this fourth step of fellowship, 
doesn't happen by accident, especially in our culture. Nobody drifts into it. This is one of the most remarkable and countercultural aspects of this passage of the fellowship. It says, every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. Every day. It doesn't say they continue to meet together in the temple courts when they felt like it. I ask you a question. Do you think everybody in the church felt like meeting in the temple courts every day? Do you think they could never come up with excuses for not showing up today? After all, this was in the Jewish temple. It was not even in a Christian setting. They didn't even play the right music. Imagine if, when Nancy and I had three children under the age of five, and Nancy said to me, what time will you be coming home for dinner? I'd have said, well, I'll be there if I feel like it. It may not be convenient for me. I might not be in the mood. I might have had a hard day. Sometimes, you know, the kids, they spill or they fight or they make a mess, and honestly, I find it a little draining, so I'll let you know if I can make it or not. Table fellowship with my family was non-optional, I promise you. When you sign a contract to go to work someplace, you don't say, I'll show up tomorrow for work if I feel like it, unless you are a very talented wide receiver in the NFL. If I devote myself to fellowship, I will lose the freedom to do whatever I want with my time whenever I want to. But gang, I promise, if you don't devote yourself to fellowship, you lose the freedom to be truly known and loved and healed and march together side by side in a great cause. You'll never know that. They devoted themselves to this fellowship. People really did this, have done it across the centuries, all kinds of contexts, not because somebody in charge harangued them, not because God said they had to do it or they were in trouble. They knew, they knew they were part of a movement that was both changing their lives and changing the world. And the more they devoted themselves to it, the more they learned and prayed and shared and struggled and cared and loved, the more they received from it. I'm telling you, when you devote yourself to the fellowship, to the practice of certain basic activities together with other folks, God will work in your lives because we contain more of him together. A few months ago, I had talked in the sermon about uh, God and sexuality, how God's plan for sexual intimacy is that it be reserved for marriage. And a young guy came up to me after the service and said, I almost didn't come this week, and I'm so glad I did. I have a girlfriend and She's beautiful, and we'd been on a trajectory where I was going to violate that value. And God spoke to me today, and I'm so grateful. I can't imagine if I had not come. We're going to talk about accountability next week. And this guy actually found another man at that service and told him about his struggle and asked him, would you help me stay accountable to my commitments to God? And God does that. Only God can do that. I promise you, if I just walked around the Bay Area in human power, saying to people, don't have sex with that girlfriend or that boyfriend, people would not come up and thank me for that. But here's a man who will have a sense of integrity and light before God that will give him a surrendered spirit and a clean heart. That comes when people devote themselves to the fellowship. And then fellowship requires sharing. In fact, if there's a single word at the core of this notion of fellowship, it's the word sharing. Sometimes that word koinonia is used simply to describe a financial gift that early Christians would share with each other. In their world in ancient Palestine, poverty was worse than we can imagine. Uh, slavery, 
imprisonment if you were a debtor and couldn't pay it off, starvation. These were everyday occurrences in that word. And then there arose out of nothing a community where people were so filled with love for God and each other that rich and poor would come together on equal footing. And sometimes people who had possessions would want to help others so much that they would go and sell a piece of property and bring the money back to the fellowship and say, make sure this gets to somebody who could really use it. Do you understand there had never been a community like this before? There was a fellowship that emerged where people who had homes and had food opened them up to people who had no homes and had no food, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. No condescension, no separation based on status. This really happened. I was thinking about this. Uh, do you think that any of the people in that first century church ever took advantage of their generosity, ever got into the church because they were starving and they heard there was free food? Must have happened. But they just stayed generous. Nancy was talking with somebody once who lives and works in under-resourced communities, and she asked him, uh, if I give the money to somebody in need, how can I make sure that they don't waste it? And his response was, do you ever waste money? And do you think God is still generous with you? See, they lived as joyful stewards and not as owners because they saw in Jesus the goal is not to prolong and enrich this temporary life. We all think we know how long we're going to live and how in control we are. And so in isolation, we just want to gather more and more and more. Uh, when my dad died, my sister's little grandson was weeping. And he said to my sister, Nana, are you going to die next? My sister is his grandmother, and she goes by Nana. Uh, our mom, his great-grandmother, goes by Nina. And he said to her, Nana, are you going to die next? And Barbie said, oh, no, honey, Nina is going to die next, which my mom was not real thrilled about. It's a funny thing. My dad, who was originally a CPA, has arranged well for my mom financially. And I was telling her how much she will be able to give away. And when she told this to her financial planner, he was appalled. And he said to me, why would you tell her to give money away? She's going next, and then it'll go to you. Now, that may be true. Part of it may go to me, but then I'm going to go. I'm going to die. It'll go to somebody else. But my heart, my stingy heart or my sharing heart, that I will take with me into eternity. Fellowship is sharing. And I think it was this spirit of sharing that led to outrageous joy, even in the middle of suffering. I think it was this spirit of sharing that made the rest of the people outside the church glad that the church existed. We share the truth about each other. The Bible says, speak the truth in love. And that's how we grow in the fellowship. When a difficult truth needs to be spoken, it's always easier to keep silent. Churches especially become places where people suffer sometimes from terminal niceness. And often relationships or even whole groups stagnate. They never get to true fellowship because when a subject is brought up that creates tension, somebody jumps in to change the subject or smooth ruffled feathers or make everything uh, go back to a surface level. Jesus never did this. Jesus ruffled a lot of feathers. Sometimes people read a passage like Acts 2, and they think the early church must have just been filled with a lot of real nice, bland people, and that's why they got along. 
Actually, the early church had all kinds of conflicts. They fought over which groups of widows got the most food. They fought over what to do about the Gentiles coming in. They fought about what rules to keep. Paul and Barnabas fought so badly over one colleague that they split up. Men named Simon Magnus got jealous and tried to buy the Holy Spirit. And Peter told him off in no uncertain terms. Paul got into Peter's face for uh, ethnocentric prejudiced legalism. They fought with each other. They fought with the government. They fought with scammers. This was not Paradise Island. These were the real disciples of ancient Palestine. Speaking the truth is what they did, and it didn't kill them. It grew them. And, and in some spiritual relationships or some life groups, there's a stagnant uh, blandness going on because nobody's willing to speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love was one of the secret weapons of the fellowship. In fellowship, we share our sufferings, share each other's troubles and problems, Paul wrote, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. Nancy and I have been in our life group for well over a decade, and in the moments we have been most sad and most afraid and most confused, that's the first little community at our church that we turn to. We don't have to be pastors. We don't have to be perfect. We can just be us. It's a strange thing I don't fully understand. Shared suffering, not just suffering, but shared suffering, has a strange power. If I were to ask about other things we have in common, if I were to ask who here likes the 49ers or who here owns a beagle or who here works in tech, there would be a certain kind of affinity. But if I were to ask who here has survived cancer? Then we'd have a fellowship. If I were to ask, who here has lost somebody that you love? We have a fellowship. In the big book of AA, it says, we are a people who normally would not mix. But there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness, an understanding which is indescribably wonderful because they have been saved together from something that they all knew would destroy them. See, that's the church. They got that from the church. We are a people who normally would not mix Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, male and female. Okay, that's the fellowship. Now, God will lead you how to take a tangible step towards fellowship, towards loving it. As you know, the impact for all of us of this series on our life depends not so much on what we hear in the sermon as what we do in between the sermons. So uh, maybe it will be making a decision that when our congregation gathers for worship, I'm going to be here every time. If I'm not out of town, if I am, I'll join online. But maybe it's making that decision. Maybe it's becoming a member of our church, going from convenience to commitment. But for all of us, I want to give one very simple action step that I want to challenge everybody to take this week. This is real simple. We can all do this. Find one person and ask if they would be a prayer partner for your own spiritual well-being for just the rest of the series, just the weeks that remain. Ask if they would pray for God to give you knowledge of his will for your life and the power to carry it out. And then, and then, actually pause and pray together with that person at least one time. 
Okay, so ask somebody if they would pray for you, and then pause and pray with them at least once. You may have never prayed with anybody before. That's okay. You don't have to be an expert. The only way to learn how to do something well is to begin by doing it badly. Uh, This is a true story. I was in a small group years ago, and there was a young woman who was from a very, very unchurched background, so prayer was very new territory for her. She'd had a boyfriend who was abusive and foul-mouthed. He had taken her money. He had cheated on her and dumped her. And we were praying for the first time. And she was so troubled by this, she just blurted out, God, I want you to kill him. That was her first prayer. And another woman in that very small group who was very churched, who used to lead revival churches in inner cities, prayed, oh no, God, we don't want you to kill him. We want you to redeem him and forgive him and heal him and restore him. And the first woman said, no, God, no, we don't. Then he'd get away with it. This is my prayer. I want you to kill him. It was like dueling prayers. This had never been covered in seminary when I went there. Like, do they cancel each other out? Do I have the tie-breaking prayer? Well, it took time and honesty and acceptance and love, and eventually, and eventually, the first woman got past that killing prayer to your will be done. You know, there's some, Bible, there's some prayers in the Bible, there's some prayers in the Psalms that look a lot like that prayer. God can handle it when you're really honest in prayer. So pray with another person. And if you've never done this before, uh, this would be a great step in your own spiritual life. You could do this with a friend. You could do it with a spouse. You could do it with a relative. You could do it with somebody in your life group. You could do it with somebody before you leave the room today. I would love for everybody in our church to know that somebody else is praying for them. And for everybody that's part of our church to be blessed by another person in prayer. Just God Bless my friend. I promise you, I promise you, if you follow Jesus in the practice of fellowship, shared life together, you will know a greater level of meaning and acceptance and joy and love than you could ever know in the safety of spiritual isolation. You will be given a glad and sincere heart You will have meals that you will always remember. You will know the freedom of being able to take off your mask. You will know the strength of being able to give to others. When you get to the end of your life, you will not be haunted by whether or not it had meaning. You will be flooded with love. So love in. Don't leave here without loving on somebody today. And the next week, we take this relational part of the way to a whole nother level. So don't miss that. I'll see you then. Well, thanks for tuning in today. We hope you were inspired by this message and can find a way to take these teachings into your week. And we'd love to see you again. If you want to find out more about our church and what's happening around the church, you can follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.